welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast, episode number 35. And I'm sat in the sun, uh, streaming through the window. It's uh, been a kind of gray, rainy February. And so I am just really enjoying this blue sky outside. And it's kind of got me in a kind of poignant, contemplative mood. So I thought I'd bring a bit of that into the um, the intro today. So welcome back. Welcome back. I hope you are doing well. Today, we're going to be talking about neuroscience and coaching again. That was a very popular episode that we did uh, a few weeks back, I think, with, um, with uh, Amanda Blake. And so this time, we're going to be talking with Anne Betts. And... Anne's a really lively soul. And so today we're going to be talking about how we can leverage the findings in neuroscience to help our clients regulate their nervous system to come back into a state of equilibrium. So Anne will share with us five key moves that we can make as coaches to support our clients to reduce stress in the brain to come back into resourcefulness. And she'll talk about the task positive network and the default mode network and what they are and what functions they perform and how we need to toggle between them and how we can know when to do that. So who is Anne? Let's take a look at her bio here. She's the co-founder of Be Above Leadership. Uh, she's, um, she's an international speaker on the intersection of neuroscience coaching and human transformation. And for many years, she was the neuroscience consultant to the Coaches Training Institute. Um, she's also collaborating quite closely now with the um, ICF as well. And she is the lead author of the book Integration the Power of Being Coactive in Work and Life. And that's a, a book about neuroscience and coaching. Okay, so I would love it if you would be willing to share this podcast if you're inspired by it. I just want as many coaches to hear this podcast as possible. Um, if you are inspired to do that, if you go to the individual podcast page at coachesrising.com forward slash podcast, you can find Anne's page there and you can just scroll down and see the kind of share buttons, the share icons. Just click on one of those and share it. And you can find other really cool podcasts there too. And what are that? What else? Oh, yeah. Hey, if you're listening to this and you've never signed up and you want to stay in the loop with the, the offerings we create and the other podcasts that we're releasing, then... You can also do that on the podcast page there. You'll find a a sign-up box. So let's dive in, shall we? Let's go for it. All right. Hey, uh, Anne Betts, I am delighted to be talking to you right now. How's things with you? Really good. Really good. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to talk to you. It feels like we have a lot of different places we could go today. Yeah, we just did that thing, which I try not to do before a podcast, which is talk about what we're going to talk about, because then we get really excited and, you know, we get really into the topics. And anyway, right now I'm feeling really fired up. So, uh, so here we are. Good. Me too. Me too. I'm excited. So where should we go first? Well, um, 
what I want to ask you first is like a bigger picture question, you know, which yeah. is, um, you know, you're someone who's really immersed in coaching and neuroscience and, and spent years exploring the intersection between those and, and, and other things too. But um, where are we at in that, mm. in that, you know, in that journey with neuroscience and coaching? Could you give us a kind of like, <laughs> what's going on in, in that field for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because I've been um, pretty involved in the last year with some different projects with the ICF. So I've got a, it's given me, one of the blessings of that is it's given me a bit of a scope around, oh, kind of what is out there? And I think the thing that is exciting is that it is starting to um, invade, <laughs> invade or maybe permeate is a better word, the coaching space. Um, in other words, you know, when I was first talking about this probably about eight years ago, um, it was super novel, which was really great at the time because there, you know, weren't a lot of other people talking about it. So it's really great for my ego. But what is exciting to me is that people are starting to, I think there is an emerging feeling in coaching like this isn't just this sort of odd thing. It is something that somehow needs to be part of the conversation in some way. So that's what feels like maybe starting to happen right now. Mm. Yeah. So could you say more about that? Like why you think that's the case, mm. like why it needs to be part of the conversation? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I, well, I think there's something changing in the world and that is, that is sort of in a dance with this in that, um, it used to be, you know, 20 years ago, I learned coaching almost 20 years ago. Oh my gosh, 2001. So it's going on that. And, you know, there was, you could just sort of tell people, well, just trust me, this works. Like you could tell people that about a lot of things. You know, I started coaching not long after, you know, I learned how to, you know, be on the internet. You know, those were like, I learned that in 1996. So it's sort of a, a sort of thinking about this historically. So what has happened in the last 20 years is I think people are less satisfied with the, in some ways less satisfied with that it's a mystery because they're used to being able to figure out or search or discover why. And so when we go into coaching class and we just say, ask these questions or do this thing or help people take a new perspective, there's... Um, sort of on, on two levels, there's both a real curiosity, like, okay, I'll, I'll do that, but why does that work? Um, and not only sort of why does that work, but also I'm not going to necessarily go with you unless you can tell me why it works. And my clients aren't going to go with you. They're used to being able to sort things a little differently. And I'm curious, um, Joel, if that's been, if that's at all your experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's no longer, um, as the, as the field of coaching is maturing, you know, we, we're being invited to, to kind of prove, uh, why coaching works and how it works and, and some of the science behind that, you know? So I think there's an element for me of like being able to tell people why it works. Yeah. And then there's an element with the, the neuroscience, which is really enabling me to bring in new distinctions in my coaching or new moves in my coaching mm. that, that, that I know why they work. Oh, this is a good thing to do now. So, 
Yeah. So I think that that's I think that that's part of it is that there's more of a demand from the consumer that we need to understand why this thing works. It also, you know, um, as well, then opens up more doors. And one of the things that's been so interesting to me and having a neuroscience background is how, um, you know, it's opened doors to organizations and companies that I never would have been able to get into and eat otherwise, or be able to do some of the things that I do, like you say, the new moves in coaching, you know, and, and not apologize for them and not hold them as woo-woo or weird, but just be able to rationally explain now why we're all going to get into our bodies or why we're going to do a moment of, of awareness or why we're going to move, you know, move around to take new perspectives and to be able to really explain that that logically, you know, I've found you can get the most logical linear people to do anything as long as they know that you're not just doing this to make them look foolish or, you know, it's not just some, you know, idea that belongs in the file with rainbows and unicorns. Mm. Well, let's, let's go. I'd love to ask you about yeah. how neuroscience <laughs> is impacting your coaching. You know, we, we spoke just a little bit before this and we're going to go into like the really the bigger picture, like for the sake of what, and I want to yes. talk about consciousness too, but before we do that, let's go into like some more of the practical ways that, that, you know, you're applying neuroscience in your coaching. So um, yeah, maybe you could share like, <laughs> like um, what is it, you know, if we, if we go right into a session with a client, like could you describe to us like the kinds of things you're doing that are that are you know um, harnessing some of the insights from neuroscience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this maybe also links even to the for the sake of what, because I can think of so many examples. But I'll give you one that is just really top of mind right now, and that is the idea of understanding the impact of stress on the brain, and understanding the research behind stress and we know that stress has health impacts and all of that but for me when i really learned um this particular research that basically says the brain needs a, has a sweet spot of stress it needs to be stimulated um so there is a there is something about like having a deadline that can focus you know for me that really helps if i have a deadline i focus my brain my brain gets a little sharper goes, if you can imagine an upside down horseshoe or a bell curve, it goes to the top of the curve with some stimulation. But if it goes over that curve, which is where a lot of our clients are because of the, the structures and demands of their organization, so you get too far, you become overstressed. And what ends up happening is you diminish the ability to do high level thinking, to make and retrieve memories, to have empathy, to be able to think abstractly rather than just concrete. It's like the brain really, in order to survive under this influx of stress, it narrows its capacity. And one of the things that is so helpful for our clients is for them to be under, to them to understand that they are having a typical response to their situation, that they're not all of a sudden have become stupid or, um, well, they sort of have, but <laughs> but let me explain that. But it's not that they're a bad person or they can't hack it. This is the way human brains are designed to operate under stress loads. And right now in many organizations, people are operating under stress loads that we were never, never designed to take on, not consistently. Maybe like, you know, momentarily you have a big stress because the 
tigers are invading your campsite. But we're not designed to deal with that day in and day out. And a lot of people are in organizations where it's like the tigers are coming after them constantly and they lose brain capacity and they think they're bad or they're wrong rather than, nope, their brain is responding the way it's designed to respond. And we have to then look to see what will help them get back to that stable center where they're actually capable again. Mm -hmm. And I find this normalization um, really, really helpful. And it also, you were talking about, I can't remember how you worded it, it was really cool, but like new sort of strategies in coaching. It's also told me that first I need to find out what's going on and is what's happening with them right now because their brain has too many stress chemicals in it. So they're having this typical response, or maybe they're bored and they don't have enough stress chemicals. That happens too. Um, then, okay, what are my strategies you know, to help them actually come back to this place where they feel themselves naturally creative, resourceful, and whole again. That's my strategy, not anything else. I've got to, I've got to figure out how to diminish, either increase the stimulation or diminish the stress because then they can find their way. Otherwise, they can't. Their brain is foggy and clouded. And that's just, I mean, that's just one that I find I use constantly these days so um what you know you just said about brain fog there and i was going to ask but yeah. like how how do you how how do you find out if somebody's overstressed you know maybe it's just obvious you know but fine <laughs> for you like if because i want to ask you about how you would help them to yeah come back yeah, to I, this creative place but what first of all like how do you know <laughs> yeah what do you see well Part of how I know is I listen for the, you know, it's listening at very much um, a language, it's a language level listening, I think at first, and it's also probably an energy listening, but I'm literally, when they're saying things to me, like, I keep forgetting things and I don't know why I'm so irritable and, you know, I can't seem to get focused on anything. Um, those, that sort of like, you know, what do you want to talk about today? I'm all over the place. I'm like, um, or they'll literally say to me, I'm so stressed. And that's what I want to talk about. But it's, it's the cues that they're telling me that says, you know, it's sort of like going to a mechanic and you say, well, my car's making a funny noise. And that's what the mechanic is listening for. Well, what sort of funny noise is your car making? And when they are telling me, you know, the funny noise my brain is making right now is I'm foggy. I'm, um, it's, it's cues like I can't think, I can't seem to think straight. I, I'm not remembering well. I'm losing track of things. I can't focus. And I'm, people are really bugging me. I'm, I'm noticed that I'm short tempered or irritable with my family, with my colleagues. That to me, those are all symptoms of either they're not getting enough stimulation or, and usually, you know, in today's society, it's probably that they're having way, way too much demand. Hmm. Um, but I'll ask them that. I'll say, I'll say, here's what we know about the brain. It operates with the, it needs the perfect amount of stimulation, but not too much stress. And if you could imagine yourself on a continuum, are you, are you understimulated right now? Is there not enough going on or are you, is there too much on your plate? And they know, they just know. Mm. Um, yeah and, and so you were saying that um you know first of all just naming like what could be happening for you right now 
can be relieving in some way, like just saying like, it's not like you're bad or anything, but you know, that it could be that there's too much demand upon your nervous system and brain. Yes. So, so then what do you do from there? You know, you said about helping them kind of come back to this creative resource place. Like how would right, you I, do that? Well, I think about, I think about this curve again, this upside down horseshoe. And I think about if they're understimulated um, and this just happened. I want to talk about that very, very briefly. And this was one of, I was doing mentor coaching with someone and he was talking about a guy he was super, he was coaching who wasn't performing, who was very distracted, kept taking cigarette breaks, things like that. And, um, and it was, the question is, and I don't know, cause I'm not directly coaching this guy, but the question, what triggered for me was, and I asked a few questions and it could be that this guy is actually in a job that he's too smart for. He needs more challenge. And so the brain literally, it's like it doesn't have enough chemicals to really be at its best. And sometimes people underperform when they're not given the appropriate amount of challenge or control or uh, creativity. So that's something to look for too, because it's, it's almost like you have both sides at the same time. So in that case, you know, if I was working with someone who was basically saying, you know, my job is sort of rote and it's like, okay, what can you do either in your job or outside of your job that would, you know, be more of a challenge. And I had a client like this years ago who started taking more classes and looking for opportunities for learning just to give her brain like something to chew on. So briefly, that's kind of the challenge side. But when the person is just really, you know, like the demands or whatever's happening is too much. And it could be even a lot of good things um, because it's just sort of too much for the brain to process. They could be having, you know, the opportunity of a lifetime at work while their daughter's getting married and their, you know, mother just went into supported living and it's all of that load coming in. So here's what we know about what will back that off. I think about we got to back that off. And these are all things that you already do as a coach, that we all do as coaches. But it's great to know that there's research that supports that what you're doing is often the perfect thing for your client. I just, I love that. So there's, based on research, and there's probably more, but there's kind of six basic things and five or six, I can't remember now because the first thing is don't suppress. It's the worst thing you can do. It will leak out. It will add to the stress load. So even just talking to your coach is, you know, it's one of the reasons why people say, I feel so much better because you've actually helped them not suppress, like put the, try to put the lid on that boiling kettle. The next one is simply naming it and helping our clients become very specific about how they feel. And I love this as coaches that if a client says, you know, well, I'm really angry right now, or I'm really upset right now, that we will usually ask some powerful questions to try to find out, well, well, tell me more about that anger or use a metaphor. Where do you feel it in your body? Ways to help them actually not just have it be sort of a surface level thing, but get more, I love this word, granular with how they're feeling. And the research shows the more granular and specific you can get about how you're really feeling, the more it will diminish the stress. And let me just pause because you've probably, like, I I don't want to just blast away here. And I'm, you know, love to hear your thoughts or you've seen this diminish stress in your clients as you've done it. Because like I said, these are things we're doing. You didn't, you know, maybe didn't know why, but they work. 
Well, yeah, actually what comes up as a follow-up question is like, what, what do you think is happening um, as somebody is uh, getting more specific and granular, for example, if they're feeling something and you're helping them, you know, hone in on that feeling and, and example. Yeah. What's going uh, on? Such a good question. It's such a really, really good question. So when we're upset, one of the things that happens is, and one of the reasons it's so hard to get ourselves unupset sometimes is that we get an influx of chemicals that are clouding the brain. And this is what is happening is that parts of your brain are participating in the processing. And I hate to say, I don't like this idea of like, there's three different brains and this activates this brain and this activates that brain because they don't really work that way. Everything is talking to everything else pretty much all the time. But one of the things that's happening when you get really stressed or upset or you feel like something's been really wrong or unfair is you may get a stronger participation from the limbic system in the amygdala. And they're really loud. <laughs> and they're not very thoughtful. They're parts of our brain that are, their job is to keep us safe, keep us alive, do more fight, flight, freeze. So they're getting loud in that moment. And, but they're not very good at observation. They're just in it. They're, and so the first thing that a client might say is more in this, I'm in it place. I'm so angry and he's so wrong. And, and what you're getting is a louder voice from the brain that is less thoughtful and able to make sense of things. So when I ask you, oh, okay, Joel, so you're really angry about this. It's really unfair. Tell me more about that. What other words are coming up? What, you know, what's a metaphor? Like if your anger was a color, what color would it be? All of those are questions that the Olympic system would very much struggle with. They really couldn't answer those questions. It's just like the limbic system just sort of goes mad, 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 or sad, you know, like that, <laughs> like a little kid. Um, so, so it's literally, I disrupt, I, I disrupt and I bring in another voice and that voice is coming from a more thoughtful part of your brain, probably the neocortex and the prefrontal cortex. And I'm, it's like, I'm a conductor saying, okay, let a little softer on the tube is a little, a little louder on the violins here. Let's hear from those. And the, in the process of that, one of the things that we know is as the prefrontal cortex starts getting more activated and those voices are being at, called to participate, it will start releasing a chemical called GABA. And GABA is a neurotransmitter. And what GABA does is it actually calms down the adrenaline and cortisol and um, some of the other chemicals in the brain that are making, that are giving us that physiological feeling of being so angry or sad or whatever it is. So you're doing a little bit of chemical balance as you're conducting this orchestra in your client's brain. Mm. Was that, a, does it, did that explanation yeah. make sense? And so um, it, it's interesting. So I like, yeah, it's great. And it brings up more questions, which is like <laughs> disruption. So you know, the prefrontal cortex is, is um, or, or let's say there's a disruption on, on these other aspects of the brain. And um, I also wonder about the word integration. Yes, my favorite that. word. <laughs> cool. That's like, that's like catnip. Like, <laughs> I'm like, yes, where, is, where can I 
get that. Um, yeah, because I think the other, the other thing that I believe in, this is a little probably too, not totally accurate, but let me say it anyway, um, that people that, um, if you have grown up in a way where you were called into fight, flight, freeze a lot, maybe you grew up in, you know, our clients grew up in abuse or in a, you know, really high level poverty where you weren't sure if you're going to have enough to eat or there's a lot of trauma around you. Um, or even just with a, you know, a parent, maybe it, that was just edgier you, what ends up happening is the voice from your limbic system and amygdala is pretty loud. And the other voices can be, it gets, you know, it, it comes out very loudly, very quickly. So when I start saying, oh, okay, well, that's good. You can have a voice, but let, let me now hear from this other voice as well. First of all, I'm not suppressing that. I'm acknowledging that that's true for you. So we haven't shut it down, but I'm amping up the others and what I'm doing in that process, I think, I'm hoping, is starting to create some communication between the two. So that the next time when this happens to the client and you're not there as a coach and somebody makes them really angry, there's a little more communication and they realize, I have another voice here too. And because we know that, and I, and I know you know this, and this is a concept that's becoming, I think the coaching world is becoming much more aware of neuroplasticity, that the more that we use a certain neural network, the stronger it gets. The more that our client practices, also speaking from the, you know, the higher brain, the stronger that gets, especially when it is sort of in the context of, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sad and upset, and it's sort of like, yeah, and you have another voice here as well that can come in. Hmm. So I think that to me is integration. Integration isn't never be mad and never be upset, but what are my, how do I blend in other voices that I also have access to and how do I strengthen their notes so that the tubas are not just always taking over everything. I don't know why I'm in them, like in an orchestra metaphor today. <laughs> and I'm just thinking also about, you know, the, the integrative effect of awareness itself, you know, like mm. just by having a coach help you identify, you know, these different points in your experience, like your emotion and the voice and, you know, um, uh, perhaps like the different thoughts that come with it. Um, there's a kind of integrative effect in in, yeah. in that awareness too. I think that's absolutely right. And I think this is why, you know, this, I think about the, um, the ICF competency, building trust and intimacy. And this is why it's so, so critical because this place of being just deeply curious and, you know, you're allowed to say everything you feel and you can say that you hate your children or your partner or whatever, because it's safe right here. And you get to acknowledge that and you get to have that part of your being and, and then, you know, discover what other parts of your being there are. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about back when I was teaching for the Coaches Training Institute and teaching more beginning coaches, we would go into something called process coaching where the, the client, and we'll talk about that in a minute because I only went through the first strategy for managing yeah. But this would be one of them. It comes a little, it, you know, it's one of the most effective, if not the most, it actually comes under the most effective. So we went to sort of the beginning and we'll go to the end. 
you know, having clients say, like, really go deep into how they're feeling in this process coaching and go deep into a metaphor and their body and be very, very present to what's going on right now. And I would have students sometimes who would be a little scared of this. It's sort of like, ooh, what if I bring this person into that and I can't get them back out again? You know, like I've taken them to the dark side and, you know, and now they're in hell and what am I, you know, I shoot, I broke them was sort of the feeling as the coach. And, and the way that I would explain it is you, what you're actually doing because of the way that you're helping them connect with what's going on is you're putting them in observer mind and in their observer mind, the prefrontal cortex probably largely activated. They are observing their process. They're observing what's going on. You are not putting them back into it. You're putting them in a place where it's safe to look at it through the process of bodily sensations and metaphor and all of that. So this is also integration. You're creating a connection between how they feel and the meaning they're making out of it in a really deep way. And I think that's probably the reason that that is probably the best strategy for working with stress is actually take them into it, but in this observer, um, curious, my friend calls it the fascinated observer way. Mm. Yeah, there's something about, um, you know, the way that things become fluid and begin to move, you know, so if I, if I um, resist something or I'm pushing it out of my awareness, you know, it kind of reifies it, it sticks and um, if I begin to bring it into my awareness and go towards it, it's like, it's paradoxical because I'm going yeah. towards it and yet I'm creating, I'm disidentifying from it and it begins to move and become fluid and, and move through me. And, and then I become more resourced again. It's so beautifully said. And, you know, I think about years ago before I knew anything about neuroscience and I was more, um, let's say, you know, and have continued to be, but really on more of a spiritual path, which is the doorway that I came into this through. You know, think about there are many, many great teachers who have said something along the lines of what you resist persists, what you look at disappears. Hmm. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. And now we start getting some of the understanding of the neuroscience reason behind why this ancient wisdom is so true. Which I think is super is super cool. My probably my very favorite quote um, comes from a French theologian, Thierry de Chardin, and he said, "Science, philosophy, and religion are bound to converge as each draws nearer to the whole." Hmm. Yeah. So I feel like in. that time can't come soon enough in <laughs> the state of the world right now. Exactly. Um, exactly. Let the, me just. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. let's go back to the other few. Yeah. Uh, you said there's five. So, there's, yeah. there's five. So naming the emotion is getting as granular as you can. Um, the next one that we know is controlling the environment. 
So basically, if you don't encounter a saber-toothed tiger, saber-toothed tigers won't stress you out. So, you know, this is just a very practical thing. It works. It's the, it's the most amazing strategy if you can do it. The trouble is that largely, you know, if you can change something, and I think we do this with our clients, we look to see, is there any, you know, is there anything they can change if they're consistently stressed out by their commute to work? You know, can they telecommute? That's just a, you know, like a simple example of changing the, you know, don't try not to encounter the stressor. But I, I think about, um, you know, we have to have other strategies because we can't always change things or at least, or the clients can't necessarily see that they can change something. So, but it works really well if you could do it. Mm. The next one would be um, focusing on values and purpose. And by the way, all of these have been shown to diminish stress chemicals in the brain. So not just make people feel better by self-report, which is really important, but literally if you test for cortisol, which is a pretty good indicator of stress, you know, and then you do one of these strategies, you'll notice that the cortisol will go down. So asking someone, you know, like, wow, you know, in your job, you're feeling like it's just, you know, endless pressure. What values are important to you? And, and what, how does it fit with your bigger purpose? Again, all of these will engage. The limbic system can't answer. The tubas can't answer this. They don't know. So you've automatically, and that's when the client will say to you, and I love this, oh, that's a really good question. And to me, that's my cue that I've got their prefrontal cortex engaged. Mm. They're not just reacting. They're not just blasting and venting. They're pausing. I've disrupted it. And that's what I want to do. And they've gone back into a state of a little bit more wonder or curiosity. Yeah. And you can sort of tell because you don't get the same, you know, when you've got a client, oh, I just, and I, I, and I know I do this myself, but where you get kind of the tape recorder response, it's like you push the right button. <laughs> hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Well, I know, I, I mean, there's, I mean, I'm thinking of that in two ways, you know, like one is that like they're talking to me, but it just feels like something they've said a lot and there's not a lot of consciousness. Yeah. But the exactly. other way is like, they're just, um, you know, you've just hit the right point and they're off, you know, like, I'm not sure oh, which way you mean it. I think I mean the first one. So thank yeah. you for clarifying. I feel like the one where this is the well-rehearsed story, this is the well-rehearsed wound, whatever it is. And I've just pushed that button and then asking a question like, wow, okay, well, so what values do you feel like got stepped on here? Well, I notice you have a value of respect. How do you feel like that's playing out in this situation? That will disrupt that, that well-worn tape. Mm. Yeah. Which is, I think we, you know, we say, don't let your clients tell stories. Well, you know, you know, bless our hearts, mine as well. Sometimes we have to tell our story, but how are we going to tell it? And can we have them start telling it in a new way um, so that they're creating different neural connections around that? I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up this, this kind of point of values and purpose because um, you know, so far we've talked about how you move from perhaps, you know, this um, stress state or like understressed state. To, mm, yeah. And, and I guess I'm wondering like, um, yeah, like the, the how do, I don't know quite how to put it, but it's like, yeah, what's the neuroscience behind like things like connecting to purpose as a leader, um, to visioning, to creativity, like peak performance, you know, like mm. the, 
if we're not starting from just someone being stressed, but if somebody's already feeling okay. pretty good and they're like, you know, you're like, okay, now we can leverage some of um, the ideas behind neuroscience to create peak performance or flow states. You know? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, there's a couple of different places that tend to get more activated in the brain when we're just focusing on execution and getting shit done and, you know, you know, checking off the checklist and moving things along and doing our databases and our Excel spreadsheets and all of that. Um, and those, so we'll talk about one, there's a network in the brain called the task positive network. And it's a, it's both the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And it's an, it's a related areas of firing that tend to all fire together when we're actively paying attention. You know, I think about task. I just had to do an invoice right before I talked to you and I was trying to figure out, okay, how many participants, let me calculate that. Where's my, you know, let me figure this out and do this invoice. And that's very task network, right? I need to get something done. I have a specific goal in mind. I need to do this. And it's, it actually keeps you very much in the present moment. The thing that is not available there is inspiration, vision, being able to look at it from someone else's perspective. It's just really a tool for moving stuff forward. So leaders and flow and inspirational leadership have got to know how to toggle between the task network and something called the default mode network and do it in an intentional way. Use them as their understand that they've got two tools and they need to, or two teams. I think of it as I call it my team of engineers and my team of wizards. And they do different things and they're both critical to really being a powerful leader. And you need to know when it's time to stop and say, okay, I'm doing this invoice, but, but when is it time to say, what's the bigger picture? This was for a partner in China. What's the bigger picture of my relationship with this partner in China? And what's the vision for where we want to go? That's probably not important while I'm doing the invoice, but it is important in the bigger context of how we work together, that we have some bigger calling and, um, and that we have a dream of where we're going and that I can see things from her view. And if I just stay in the task mode, my brain doesn't do that. Do you, um, so the, how do we know? You know, I mean, I guess like, that's like how long is a piece of string? You know when you know. But you, um, and I guess maybe it's through practice and you just find out. But well, it's a this is a much this is like a, a much bigger and to me completely fascinating conversation. These two networks. One of the ways you know is that basically your mind wanders the moment that you're not actively paying attention. So you know, the minute, and people's minds wander all the time, like while you're driving, while you're in a meeting, you're not, if you're not actively paying attention, your brain will be in the default mode. And the default mode has two speeds or two ways that it goes. It goes either up into vision or down into rumination. And so this is why I say a leader or all of us, we're all leading something in our lives, actually need to understand how to use the default mode intentionally because otherwise what we'll do is we'll go into the vision will be sort of worst case scenario and worrying. 
Mm. And that's that middle of the night. What the, the task mode does is keeps us in the present moment. What the default mode does is sends us on what they call mental time travel. So we're going to the past and the future. That can be either useful or destructive. Mm. So when you have a group, if you're working with a team or even just an individual client and I am, you know, it's the beginning of the year. And so I'm having a lot of conversations with my client, like, Ooh, imagine it's a year from now. What do you want to be talking about? What are we celebrating? Like what happened this year? A total default mode question. I'm putting them ahead. I'm mentally taking them into the future, but I'm saying we're talking about celebration. I'm framing it up as a, as a, Ooh, not like what could go wrong this year. <laughs> Their brain will do that on its own. But ooh, what could go right? Mm. What would be cool? And if you don't do that with a client, they have nothing to work toward. Mm. And the bigger purpose behind all of the effort gets lost and it just starts feeling like they're you know, one of those horses just, you know, with their head down, pulling a cart and, you know, just getting through the day. Yeah. Yeah. And and because I mean, a lot of time when I'm meeting clients or at least like particularly like the executive clients I'm working with, you know, they really seem to be um, in, um, maybe like the negative sides of both of yeah. these, like they're, they're, um, they're like really focused on doing a lot, you know, like chunk getting through grinding through everything, but perhaps with this like stress kind of um, background where they're worry, worrying about things. And so, um, yeah, I wonder if that's, you know, possible to then begin, I guess where I'm going with this statement is like, I wonder if it's possible to begin to, um, harness both of these in mm-hmm. um, at the same time, you know, to be able to be in the present moment in a positive way, like mindful, present, yes. and um, oriented to the the kind of future outcome, and and like kind of leading from that place in the present moment. Mm, well said. Yeah, yeah, I love that because I think you're. You're absolutely right. And when I think this sort of links to, you know, this, this bigger question for me, which is for the sake of what are, for the sake of what are we doing neuroscience for the sake of what are, you know, are we even, are we coaching? And to me, I, I have an, I'm going to confess, I have an agenda. My agenda is consciousness. Now, how that manifests in someone's lives and what particular we work on and what decisions they make about that, I am completely non-attached to. But I'm very clear with my clients, if you work with me, here's what we're up to. If you want to work with me, you don't have to work with me, go work with somebody else. But if you work with me, this will all be about looking at how how you are continuing to develop your consciousness. And what I have seen, this is back to integration, is that that's a process of expanding integration in numerous areas. One of them is this ability to have the violins and the tubas playing at the same time and get the violins a little louder, the prefrontal cortex. The other is being able to understand, where am I right now? Am I, first of all, am I, am I not present? Have I gone into this worst case scenario? How am I using my two networks? Am I driving myself too hard in the task network? Am I letting the default network take me to rumination? 
Or am I using the task network for this very attuned presence and having that fueled by my understanding of other people, my, my ability to see their perspective and my focus on a bigger vision? Because that's flow. That's amazing. And so um, beautifully spoken, that beautiful. Um, and you said about consciousness and that you are open with people uh, before you start. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that bigger picture and consciousness, because um, perhaps I could say something, you know, like, yeah, um, please. it's like an, uh, um, an ethical question I have, which is, <laughs> you know, this ship is going down, you know, that's what it feels like to me. And so what are we going to do about that? You know, mm. as coaches, I believe like, or at least the question I'm living within is like, what role do I play? Do I play a role in, um, you know, playing with helping people play a bigger game within the current system, you know, is contributing to this ship going down? Um, or, or do I, um, do I confront people in some way and, you know, in a way that they begin to question on a deeper level and, and to, to question the systems that we're in. And, so, um, you know, and my heart, like, as I, I have to admit, like, as time goes on, like, I can't, I can't invest in that older game anymore. You know, I feel like I have a, some kind of duty to, to shake people. And I feel, I feel like that's happening anyway, you know, like, it's like, actually, but of course, you know, I don't want it to be about my agenda and, and to come in and, uh, you know, but I, but I, but I, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you get a sense wow. of, yeah. I, so I, maybe this is what, you know, maybe this is part of the, um, the coaching field growing up. So we have started out with this, oh, it's just totally about what the client wants. I mean, even to the point where sometimes I get into these weird conversations about even using a tool or, or teaching the client something, you know, if I teach them about their brain and I have some people who sort of look at coaching in, a, in kind of what I would say is maybe a little bit of a rigid way. You're like, oh, you know, you're not supposed to be a teacher. And I'm like, yeah, but if I take two minutes and I explain to them that their brain is having a normal response to stress, then the next time it happens, they maybe don't need me. I'm building their capacity, you know, and this needs to be part of what we're doing. So, yeah, and then there's this whole, I love it, oh my God, where do I start? So I think I mentioned to you in my email, I'm reading this book right now called Dying for a Paycheck. And it's really fascinating. And it's, a, it's by a Stanford University professor who is looking at how work is killing us. And he's really looking at also how it's, it's things that certain companies are doing that are increasing stress are actually counterproductive. And he makes a pretty good argument for the companies that are good to their people and have policies, even like on-site daycare. Patagonia has on-site daycare so people can go have lunch with their kid. This reduces stress. This increases performance. Some of these things that they're saying, it's not a question of either be nice or be profitable. Those two are linked and we need to start speaking that more because there's a myth that if you're good to your people, you reduce process profits, and it is absolutely the opposite. Mm. So just to, on my soapbox for a minute, he even gives examples in his book, and I have seen this. So the question is, as coaches, am I helping people 
uh, deal with their stress within a system that is continually toxic? Have I made it into an individual problem? And so my analogy is that for some companies, it's so imagine this, imagine that you go to work and everybody's smoking and there's just a fug of smoke hanging over the, the office and you go to your manager and you say, you know, I, I'm getting sick from this smoke. Like I can't take it. I've got headaches and I'm coughing and my doctor says this is really, really bad for me. And the manager says, oh, well, that's okay. We'll give you a coach who can help you figure out strategies to deal with the smoke. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and you would sort of be like, no, I just need people to stop smoking. Hmm. And I, I have to say, and maybe this is going to make people, some people mad at me, but I actually think that some organizations are using coaches in that way. Rather than saying, what do we need to do as an organization to stop making our people sick, to stop demanding that they work 80-hour weeks, to stop demanding, you know, either through policy or through culture that they have no time with their families or no time to exercise, you know, and, and this can be a policy thing or it can just be a everybody knows, everybody knows that if I go home at five, I won't get promoted so to me, that's, and so how are you using a coach there to help people survive the smoke or to, or is that just a bandaid that keeps you as an organization from looking at how do we get rid of the smoke? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wish is that, uh, my hope, should I say, is that, that, you know, if we talk about consciousness that as people, become more self-aware and we talk about things like um, values and purpose that they have an innately kind of um, innate goodness and truth and beauty to them. And that, you know, they begin more and more people begin to um, align in a, in a way that's kind of um, sustainable and, and helps us thrive. And that that kind of spreads out amongst others, you know? And so, there, the, yeah, then, for instance, within a company that the culture can change, and of course, the CEO and the, the management are really important in that. But my hope is that it goes beyond that. And it's, you know, we're talking about entire societies. And I don't want to be a bit grandiose about coaching. I think, you know, this is a much bigger game than coaching. But um, yeah, I think, I think you, you, you know, what you're pointing to is really important. It's like, yeah, do we use coaches to kind of help people cope? Yeah. Right. Cope with things that they were never really designed, that the human system is designed for relationship, for rest. When we were hunter-gatherers, we rested huge parts of the day. It's designed for sleep. We need seven to nine hours of sleep in order for our brains to work well. You know, it's designed, that's how our human system is designed, and to be socially connected and to have a certain amount of control and certainty. And all of this, our organizations are sort of, pushing against. And so I, I think that, you know, when I think about managing stress, which is sort of where we started, to me, it's saying, okay, there is a role for coaches to help the client get back to a place where they can think clearly again and be in touch with their values. And, you know, the other things on the list of the five things to do for stress are take a new perspective, 
and then be mindful and present. So all of those things that we do as coaches can help that person come back to the place where they feel efficacious again. And then I think the question is, okay, do you, and this is sort of where you started out, how, what is your role in changing the system, in extricating yourself from the system? Like what is happening here? And I think this is also why we need coaches at the highest level who are looking at this this way, rather than just helping the CEO, you know, be comfortable making more profit, you know, but are looking at the bigger system of things. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, actually, um, I also feel much more free these days to really challenge people's um, ideas about things, you know, like why, why is that important to you? And, um, you know, just, just, just to not take everything as at face value, but to, to go much deeper and again, not to like impose my ideals or my agenda on people, but just to play the devil's advocate more because, um, you know, that's not only um, in line with my ethics, but I think deeply transformational for people. So. Yeah. And you're in your, you know, you're really pointing to, and I think this is a conversation that it's time for the coaching world to have a robust conversation about this, about ethic ethics in coaching, you know, sort of the next level of ethics in coaching, what are we doing with this amazing technology of coaching? Are we helping people cope with the smoke? Are we getting rid of the, the, you know, are we cleaning the air? Um, And I don't know that there's a, you know, just one answer, but it's, we're not talking about it because what we've always said is, well, it's whatever the client wants. And, you know, I think what you and I are saying, well, what if what the client wants isn't good for the planet, isn't good for the world, isn't good for humanity? What's our ethical responsibility then? What if it lowers consciousness on the planet? And I, I find this you know, I don't have a one answer, but I would love that would love us as a as a field to start having this conversation more robustly. Mm. Yeah, and without knowing um, what may come out of this, I, I guess I'm just encouraging people who are listening in to to reach out or, or share thoughts, ideas. You know, um, I might regret saying that. I don't know how many <laughs> people, but but you know. Um, I guess there might be some people listening who have some thoughts on this and um, you know, that as a field, we can be kind of intentional in this conversation. So. Yeah. And the other thing I want to just add in is it's um, I think this is also the place where science and logic really plays a wonderful role and can play a wonderful role. And that if you've got a client, for example, if we take it back to the personal level, I'm thinking out loud, so this is not totally formulated, but if you've got a client who's really got a false belief, you know, maybe they come to you and they've got a belief that, you know, all men are terrible and all men just want to manipulate. And that's a false belief that is not serving them right? And you would not hesitate. You would not feel like you are encroaching on their um, agenda by helping them see that it is a false belief and it's not serving them and it's not getting them really what they want, right? You know, that wouldn't feel like you were not holding the client's agenda. Yeah. So I think many organizations and companies are mired in 
a false belief that more hours means more productivity, totally false. We know this from the stress curve. We know this from the research on productivity. We know that people actually are more productive with better family um, connections, fewer hours, all of that, that you actually increase productivity. You know, this belief that you have to be, you know, push people to their limit in order to have them to be successful. All of these are false beliefs. It's just like believing that all men are bad. Mm -hmm. Companies believe this. So I don't know that it is not honoring the client's agenda to help them start seeing that their belief is false mm -hmm. and that it's not getting them to what they really want, which is, you know, robust profit. It might get them short term but it will not get them long-term. And I, I think about this interesting example, and this comes from Dying for a Paycheck, my book of the week or the month. Um, he talks about after 9-11 that most of the U.S.-based, U.S. Um, air, air, uh, airlines laid people off. And Southwest said, we've never had a layoff and we're not going to start now. Get out there and do your job as best you can with everything you've got. And they turned a profit at the end of the year. They, mm -hmm. were, more, they were more profitable mm -hmm. because they have an ethic of believing in their people and, and doing right by their people. So, you know, I think we need to start helping our clients see that maybe what they think is going to get them somewhere is not actually going to get them there. And this is where I think coaches educating themselves about the real science, the neuroscience of if you've got a client who's pushed to the stress level because they're working 80 hour, 80 hour weeks, they're probably going to be doing damage. They're probably going to be making mistakes and that are actually going to be not only not productive, but um, take things backwards. And I think we people need, and then understanding the social science around what really, what really works, if, especially if you're coaching in an organization, and not just help people learn how to deal with toxic smoke. Hmm. Oh, it's my soapbox I, yeah, for the day. No, but I, I, you know, I, I like it, and I just imagine if people were more um, eloquent in their reasoning when when in organizations that that would make it more likely for change to happen so mm. um you know and like you said science and logic can actually really play an important role here in um in, in backing this up so so like um i like hearing that and um i've got a couple more like i'm just keeping an eye on the time and, and yeah, yeah. i just wonder if you've got time for a couple more questions absolutely like um, one of the things you said when we checked in was like how our brain predicts. Like you said, oh, I've been kind of thinking about that a bit and well, reading about it. And I just wondered if you could say a few things about that. Well, it's really, I love things. Um, and I kind of sense you're the same way. I, I love things that completely turn me on my head. You know, like what? Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on a second, because they're very, they're they're very stimulating. I think they stimulate my brain. And so, um, there there's we have been taught. I was taught, and I was taught this, you know, in when I was in graduate school for neuroscience, that we react. 
as human beings, we react. Something happens and we react and that is our fight, flight, freeze. We even will say it is the fight, flight, freeze response. I reacted, I was triggered. All of these words are how we tend to think of ourselves. And you know what I'm trying to do is control my reactions. I'm trying not to get so triggered. You can hear it in our language. Okay, so this is the latest thing that I'm working on and really looking at how we weave it into our program where we teach neuroscience and consciousness and how I weave it into my practice more and how I weave it into my own life. Because the, the, what the research actually shows is that the brain is not reacting. What it's trying to constantly do is predict. So we're actually... And, but it happens so immediately and so quickly, it feels like a reaction. It really does. So for everybody who's going, wait a minute, it feels like a reaction totally. And it does to me as well. But the truth of the matter is we go so quickly. Our brain is always trying to manage what available energy we have. And how it does that is by constantly looking at what it assumes is going to happen based on the current context and our previous experience constantly. And so we are, interestingly, and if you sort of stop this and break it down, something happens and you think, well, I'm really upset about that. If you really slow this down, what you can start to get an insight around is, I'm actually upset about what I'm predicting will happen. Mm. And the... I haven't totally integrated this yet. I'm still working with it, but there's, a, there's both an opportunity and a responsibility if we start to understand, oh, it's not just, oh, you triggered me, and so of course I responded this way, but I am, I'm predicting. I'm predicting that I'll be hurt. I'm predicting that um, this will be difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. That I can disrupt, maybe potential. I can't change what, what I did if I just got triggered or reacted, but I can start to pay attention to my predictions mm. and start intervening. And I think that one of the things that happens as people are at higher levels of awareness is they slow that down a bit and they start saying, even in the moment, they start predicting less negatively. Mm. Yeah. That, that, um, is that you know, fascinating? Yeah, it is fascinating. And, you know, I'm just sitting here and um, that just feels intuitively true to me, you know. Um, I mean, of course, I can think of examples where I can, you know, very you know, tangible examples where I'm predicting that something might go wrong. But, but beneath that, like, I can get a sense of how, like, it might be just an underlying kind of attitude that my brain is, is taking, yeah, you know, and so that there's a possibility to really kind of zoom in on how, on that predictive aspect to my experience and how it may be negatively impacting me or, you know, yeah, you know, creating rea more reactivity through, through prediction. Yeah. More, we don't have a new word for that. Mm. And I'm, I'm thinking um, that the process when we help a client take a different perspective, 
you know, and that's such a core, you know, reframe CTI, we called it balance coaching or taking different perspective, reappraisal, they call it in neuroscience sometimes, but it's basically just look at something from a different view. That I think helps create neural pathways toward different prediction and less, you know, what we commonly know as is reactivity, which is predict, maybe we should need to start calling it predictivity. And I think about, um, so I'll just share a, a story of where I think I may have disrupted this a little bit. I'm just realizing this. So, you know, um, sort of my, and whatever our predictivity is, we come by it honestly. And so for me in relationships, I don't like conflict. My predictivity goes that if there's conflict, it's going to mean lack of love, you know, lack of connection. It's like the, you know, the ceilings falling in for me. And my, my partner is much more comfortable with conflict. <laughs> it's like just, he sort of tends to think of conflict as just, you know, I just say he's from New York. He's like, I just say what you, you know, say whatever. It is no big deal. And what I'm realizing is that I'm increasing my ability to predict that conflict has a positive endpoint, not a destructive endpoint. And so we just had a little um, miscommunication over text this morning. And in the past, when my prediction was conflict is the end, and if he's angry at me, that is the end of my safety and security, um, which is, you know, part of my makeup, um, that that would take me to a place where the whole day I would be upset and pissed at him. And why did he do this? And instead, I notice, because I've been working on this, that I have this, oh, I should just go talk to him about it. Because Conflict, because I'm having a different automatic prediction, which is conflict. I don't like it. It's irritating, but it can be resolved. That's a different prediction, and it puts me in a different physiological state. I have less anxiety and less, I'm noticing less chemical shit going on in my body. I think because I'm just assuming now we can, ah, we just need to talk about this. It's mm -hmm. fine. Well, you know, um, it it kind of makes me think of uh, what we when near the beginning of the conversation we talked about how science and spirituality and um, was it Tila Deshana said they would all yeah. come together and yeah, um, you know, I think in, as I've done my spiritual practice and my therapeutic practice and psychological practice, I just uh, you know, and I'm and I'm humble. I'm holding my hands up here because you know. <laughs> But but like I just I've gotten more and more of a sense of how much I'm living within my own interpretations of the world, mm. you know? and I think that's an idea that all coaches will recognize. But mm. you know, like m more and more, I realize I don't know, you know, and how I thought, oh, that was the way the world is. But in moment by moment, I'm living in, in my interpretation of the world, and so that <laughs> beautiful, kind of quite despairing in some ways also incredibly enriching because you know i can take on very empowering interpretations so i can begin to play with that capacity and um, almost like um you know you know kind of become a magician but um but but yeah you know like that that so so like that's like the science now is talking about how our brain predicts and yeah you know yeah and that reality and and on on every level is a co-created process. So there's an old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? And 
And what we know from science is that sound involves, a, a, we could say, a speaker and a listener. So if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, the correct scientific answer is, you know, does it make a sound? No, because it will emit sound waves. But without something to receive those sound waves, sound as we know it does not occur. And all of our reality is occurring this way. Light, you know, color is, is light that we construct into uh, shapes and edges and shadows and all of that. We are constructing, but it is not purely constructed. There, there are these sound waves and this, these light, but what makes it into what we consider reality is what is happening in our brain. And the same is true as we perceive someone else's emotion or our own emotion or, you know, the reason why did somebody do this, uh, our perspective on something. It is a, things happen and then, but the reality of it is a co-create, always a co-created process. Mm. Um, and I find that really cool and I also think that this is an underline for what we're already doing as coaches, because I'm thinking about this whole idea of um, prediction, part of what's embedded in the work that I'm studying right now, and it's the work by a woman named Lisa Feldman Barrett, and her amazing book is How Emotions Are Made. And um, she's talking about that Emotions are always constructed based on our context and what's happening inside our body and our previous experience. And, you know, my prediction of I'm having this emotion because of my contextual experience and I'm having all of this anxiety and upset because I assume that conflict is the end of the world. And so I'm constructing this emotion. And one of the things I love about coaching is we don't look at our clients and say, you're angry. Why are you so angry? We say, I'm getting a sense of something. Is it anger? Tell me what's going on there. Is it anger or is it, you know, something else? That we are trained, if we're well-trained as coaches, we're trained not to assume. We're trained to unpack what the client is constructing. And that is so honoring and so rich and so in line with the way the brain works. And we did, again, we didn't even know it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, slight tangent to what you're saying, but it, it just makes me think of now where are the boundaries between two people when they're mm -hmm. in a conversation, you know, like because of the conversation we're having now about construction and um, context and interpretation, you know, in some sense it opens up for me like, you know, in one way we could say, I mean, I'm this skin encapsulated person, but you know, that doesn't seem sufficient. Right? <laughs> like, perhaps we're much more, you know, on one subtle uh, level, we are, um, you know, inextricably linked and co-creating each other. Um, and there's a, there's a neurological kind of, um, you know, uh, arising or like a field happening yeah. too, you know, like, um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could not possibly agree more, which is why I think this and it, it's a it's a Western view, but it's a Western view that I think has permeated a lot of the East as well, that we are separate individuals and that we should just figure out how to cope with the toxic smoke. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Rather than that, we are part of a, of a co-created system and that every system and human that we're in or with will have an impact on who we are. And I think about, there's a fascinating, I think it's on YouTube, it's a little scary, but you can see this image where there's a whole bunch of metronomes in a room and they start, and they're all clicking at different, in, at different speeds. You know, the um, talk, talk, talk. Mm. And as you watch it, they all sync up together and it starts seeming like, you know, like a Nazi march or something. It's a little bit, it's a little bit weird, but you can see that. And we will sync up with the systems that we're in. We are this paradox of individual, of, of, per, of permeable and individual you know, there are perceived edges to our skin. You have your opinions, I have mine. And yet, you know, there will never be a conversation like the one we just had. And, and I, am, I, am a, I am in some ways un, a unique version of me out of what you are bringing to this conversation. And by the way, it's a really cool version of me. I just want to keep talking to you because I, I love this version of me. But you are inspiring that by who you're being and by the metronome of you. And, and in a great conversation, we end up in this amazing harmony. And this is who you are in this moment, on this day, because of everything around you and who I am in this moment. This will never, who you are will never exist again quite how it is right now. Hmm. Hmm. I want to I end on that high. You know, there's a way that we could continue. And, and, and I'm also really enjoying our conversation. You know, like the, I can feel the impact it's having on my nervous system and my brain and my emotions. And it's very positive. And, but, I, but I, like, I want to leave on, on this, you know, like let's leave this un, unfinished or, mm. or let's leave, leave it open in this way. And, um, and I do have one last question, which is, yes. could you, you mentioned like, uh, you know, the book, um, how emotions are made. Are there any other resources that you just think are people listening need to know about, you know, um, anything but in the field of neuroscience and coaching as well, but. Oh, wow. Um, There's a lot. And in the neuroscience field, the question is always like, well, people say, is there a neuroscience book? It's like, well, what are you interested in? Because they tend to be more specific. Um, So uh, I have got on. So what I'm going to point people to is, if you'll forgive me, I'm actually going to point people to my blog. I know you, yeah. Uh, Tell us where we can find out more about your work. Yeah. So a couple of things on there. Okay, awesome. So my blog is yourcoachingbrain.wordpress.com. And two things. One is there's a resources page where I've listed a lot of the books that I really like and why I like them. So that can be very helpful. For me, some of the big names to follow right now are Dr. Dan Siegel, Mm-hmm. And he'll give you a lot of good stuff on mindfulness and integration. Lisa Feldman Barrett, we're going to be hearing a lot more from her. Um, she is just emerging. Um, I think she's going to be a, a really, really important uh, contribution to the how we, un- everything we do is based on emotion and she is picking apart emotion like nobody else I've ever seen. Um, So those would be two really big ones. The other thing I want to mention about the blog, yourcoachingbrain.wordpress.com, is 
I mentioned five ways to manage stress. Well, if you go in there and you just search for stress, there's some good digestible articles. There's also a couple of articles on the task positive network and the default mode network. And you can just go in and search for those as well. So people who were sort of like, wait, what were those five things Anne was talking about? I think there's an article in there and it tells you what you can do as a coach. So that's a, that's a helpful, very digestible resource. Mm. And I just want to say a big thanks. I've really enjoyed myself. I think this has been a rich conversation and, um, you know, a lot for people to take away and, and digest. So thanks for being so generous. Oh, God, you're welcome. It's been an absolute delight. And I feel like we could go a million other places. So thank you for being just a wonderful um, conversation partner, not mm. just interviewer. So thank you. Hello, it's me again, Joel, and you made it to the other side. You are now made it through the vortex of a Coaches Rising podcast. So I just want to say, if you were inspired by this podcast, I'd love it if you would share it uh, on Anne's podcast page at coachesrising.com forward slash podcast. You'll see an index page there. If you go to Anne's page, you can just Scroll down and find the share buttons and just click on one of those there and share away and spread the goodness. I'd love that. Actually, I do I do have a mission that as many coaches as possible can benefit from this podcast. And if there's any guests that you think would be great to have on the podcast, I'd love to know about that too. And if you want to stay in the loop about future podcasts as they are released and about our other offerings, then you can sign up on our homepage, coachesrising.com, or on the podcast page. Just put your name and email in there, and you'll stay in the loop. So be well, coach well, and I will see you next time. 